Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org. Good morning. Joining us now for our Every Day is Earth Day segment is Dr. Heidi Roop. She is a University of Minnesota Extension Specialist in Climate Change, Adaptation, Impacts, and Communications. Good morning, Dr. Roop. Good morning. So you recently came to Mankato and spoke to the Green Scene Group about climate change, a group of folks mainly from the agriculture field. What was your main message to that group when you came down? You know, I had multiple messages, but I think the most important message is that we understand that we are navigating through a new um, climate context and that really working together is going to ensure our best chance at navigating new climate extremes and managing for those risks. And one of the things in your bio biography, it says your mission is to improve the reach and impact of climate science in order to engage, motivate, and catalyze action around climate change. So what sorts of things have you been doing to enforce and make that mission happen? That's great. So, you know, when I think about, most people don't have the privilege of thinking about climate change every day, and um, some people wouldn't want that role, <laughs> but of course I, I enjoy it. I've made a career of it. Um, and for me, it's really about thinking, you know, we when we look at our daily lives from the tap in water in our sinks to the roads that we drive on and the bridges that we cross and the communities we live on, assumptions about a stable climate or about climate are embedded in how many of those systems that we rely on every day are designed, um, including um, elements of the agricultural sector, right? It's all about managing for climate-related risks and other risks as well as designing for a specific climate context, right? We don't um, build our infrastructure and our water systems in the same way here in Minnesota as you would in Florida, in part because the climate setting is very different. So as we think about a cli climate change, right, as we've put greenhouse gases in the atmosphere that has warmed the planet, that warming translates into changing patterns of climate extremes and, and changing patterns of weather, our state is warming, we're experiencing more heavy precipitation. And what we need to think about is how, as we're designing for the future, for tomorrow, are we designing for the climate of the past or for the climate of the future, the climate that we know we've already set in motion? So the work and the research that I do sort of has two pieces. I work to help generate the climate science information we need to understand what it is we need to plan for in the future. We do this through computer um, climate models, and I have several colleagues here at the University of Minnesota who support um, projects like that, and we work together. And then also think about how is it that we deliver that information and provide and add capacity and value as people with other expertise think about how they might use and apply that information as they go about everything from what kind of farm equipment you might buy in a decade or what kind of crops you might want to think about um, working into your rotation every year through to um, how are we going to design a culvert, spec a culvert or design a bridge um, to be able to make sure that it's resilient to, say, a much wetter and warmer Minnesota that we know we are likely to experience. As you go around speaking, like you did recently in Mankato, I'm sure you do that quite a bit. How are you being accepted? Are there still people who 
don't think climate change is a big deal. I mean, we hear that politically, that some people think it's more of a crisis and other people thinking it's not a big deal. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. What are kind of the receptions that you get as you are out and about speaking to all these different groups? You know, in general, on the whole, it's, you know, I'm received well, I guess. There are, of course, people who disagree with my message. They maybe challenge the science. But I think those are really healthy and important conversations that we need to have. And increasingly, it's less about whether things are changing or things are different or more challenging, but more about how is it that as we're thinking about solutions, as we're thinking about grappling with these changes, does that ensure that those solutions make sense on the landscape, that they make sense across different sectors, right? The problem and challenge with climate is that there's no one-size-fits-all solution. And so that involves sort of thinking and doing and collaborating in different ways. And I think we rightfully need to be having really difficult conversations about what are the implications of these changes in our day-to-day and our long-term future, but importantly, how do we make sure that we're not making other problems worse? Because let's be real, when we get out of bed every morning, climate change isn't necessarily the first thing we worry about. We're worried about a whole host of other issues, um, about putting food on the table, about making sure we have an income, Um, climate change exacerbates and threatens lots of these societal stressors, often called a threat multiplier. Um, But we need to start weaving dialogue about climate solutions into these other challenges that we face as rural and urban communities. And one reason that that is important, in my opinion, is that if we choose to be proactive in thinking about what are the implications and the impacts of a changing climate on our economy, on our landscapes, on agricultural productivity, insert the thing that you care about, right? Where do our values align? And where can, you know, this proactive stance and considering potential risks, you know, managing for those risks proactively as we manage other risks? um, I think we know both from the science and from economics um, that we will be better off (laughs) as a result of thinking proactively about it rather than responding, say, to negative events or these, say, a climate impact that might damage our infrastructure, um, we're better off um, making those earlier upfront investments um, rather than sort of constantly responding. Heidi, you've been studying climate change for quite a while and been involved with this. Have you seen specific things that have been a success that we've implemented and things maybe that we've tried that aren't a success that need to be adjusted? You you know, you talked about solutions. So I'm just curious if if you've seen in your years of practice and learning and teaching about this, you have any thoughts? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. My previous work and some of the work that I continue to do here at the University of Minnesota is I work a lot in the water sector. So these are folks who are managing our drinking water, our stormwater, wastewater. And there are lots of examples in that sector and other sectors Um, where engineers and leadership of these organizations have been coming together to think about, you know, how do we respond to a stress right now, say, not being able to provide clean, safe drinking water because part of our system is failing regularly because of, I don't know, say, extreme heat. Really thinking creatively and innovatively and putting into practice or designing new infrastructure to often solve for not only an existing problem, but one that they think might get worse with climate. And so it's, again, this sort of folding in of proactive risk management in the context of a changing climate through lots of these infrastructure and other sort of 
investments. There are, of course, many examples that go beyond sort of hard infrastructure in the built environment. Um, and I, I would just say, you know, in the state of Minnesota, um, there are lots of examples on the landscape. We've got folks experimenting with new crop varietals, thinking about um, how can we increase our soil health, which acts both to reduce erosion and the Im- negative impacts of extreme precipitation while also storing carbon, right, the root cause of the problem. Um, we don't have to look very far to see communities and individuals um, working in service of these solutions and testing whether they work and how well they work. And the state of Minnesota, for example, this last legislative session, um, our elected leaders um, supported resources um, to distribute resiliency grants um, out into Minnesota communities. The opportunity for the, that funding is actually open now. Um, communities can request funds from the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency to do some of this adaptation or this climate-related planning. Think about what does the future hold, where are their potential weaknesses in their system, and how might they um, get a plan in place that will help them implement um, these changes, these adaptation measures, or building resilience into these systems. And so there's lots of opportunities where people are thinking creatively and doing work, and increasingly we're seeing more and more funding to help communities plan, but also implement. Are these uh, these grants you're talking about mainly available to city governments and that sort of thing? Is it companies, individuals, or how is that being distributed in terms of who's going to get to get these and implement this? Yeah, they're communities, so cities and municipal governments and things like that. Um, they it, Researchers, for example, like myself, we can partner on proposals that we are not allowed to seek them. They really are intended to help communities plan for with an emphasis on sort of stormwater and water resource management. Um, and you can find that information on the Pollution Control Agency's website. But they are intended for Minnesota communities to plan. You have done a number, a bunch of traveling in your climate science career. You've been around the world. I've read that you've been done, have done research in Greenland, Antarctica, and the mountains of Vietnam and New Zealand. What sorts of research have you done in this climate change field in those countries, and how is it applied here to your work here in the States? Yeah, so a bulk of my climate science research has really been about trying to collect records of past climate, really working to answer the question, you know, is what we are observing and measuring today really that different from the past? You know, is, is the climate of today really that different? Is it really humans? These are questions that, of course, are, are answered from multiple facets, but I have spent a bulk of the most recent time, and in, including current research that's just been funded um, for my team to work in Antarctica. We um, collect things like ice cores uh, and lake sediments, the lake uh, sediments at the bottom of lakes, and those, those archives, those sort of time machines, if you will, they hold clues and direct evidence of Earth's past climate. And so in many ways, that research has, it, it informs uh, my work because it's, it's been, these are some of the, the foundational data sets that we in the climate science community have that help us contextualize and understand what about today's climate is different. Um, importantly, what is driving that change? And because of records, like I, the ice core record that I've helped to contribute to collecting and, and developing um, we are very clearly able to say that the climate of today and the changes that we are living and experiencing are very different from the geologic past on the order of several hundreds of thousands of years um, and the future that we are headed towards, um, depending on how much greenhouse gas emissions we produce as a global society, 
um, could put us in a climate setting with a, a warmer global average temperature um, than what the Earth has sustained for at least the last three million years. Um, and so a big part of my work has been that sort of put, put looking to the past in order to understand both today as well as understand um, what that might mean for future climate change and its impacts on communities and the landscape. So are you essentially saying it is humans' fault and maybe the industrial age, or can you pin it on anything in particular? Yes, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's most recent report that was released in August as part of a of regular um, assessment update. We, we do these periodic updates of the global science, um, global climate science, and um, they have come out for the first time um, based on thousands of peer-reviewed studies. Um, it is unequivocal that the climate change that we are observing today um, and the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, as well as the corresponding warming, um, that is caused by humans. And we know that and can see that very clearly. Um, and we can actually use um, geochemistry to sort of fingerprint the sources of emissions in the atmosphere. And so we have multiple lines of evidence. Um, but yes, the main take-homes around climate change today, um, based in deep and rich science, is that it's here, it's now, and it is us. When you pinpoint it further, it's humans, but is it burning of fossil fuels? Is it uh, cars? Is it, I mean, is there something that you look at? Can you determine that where the main source is that you can figure out then how to fix it? Yes, it is predominantly the production of greenhouse gases like methane, carbon dioxide, nitrous oxide. Um, we can measure these in the atmosphere. Measuring of things like carbon dioxide and methane have been going on uh, regularly for many decades. We can also pinpoint these in more contemporary um, ice core records, for example. Um, and we know very clearly from both reporting and real-time measuring um, where current emissions come from, the energy sector, yes, transportation, things like fossil fuels and our combustion engines, um, agricultural productivity. Um, there are multiple sources of greenhouse gases that are produced through human activities. There are, of course, natural sources, but the only way that we can re recreate um, the observed pattern of warming and emissions in the atmosphere is through the contribution of human-produced greenhouse gases. Is there something that stands out that you could do, for example, replace, renew, use renewable energy, for example, would that make a big difference, or, or doing a different type of agriculture. Are there anything that makes a huge difference? Because, you know, we talk about everybody can make a little difference, but what would make the biggest difference, do you think, in helping us to slow this down? Yes. Yeah, so the main things, right, are we do need to reduce the, our, our, our greenhouse gas emissions. Those come from a variety of sectors. Energy production being the largest sector, um, sitting around 70% of the total emissions produced. Um, and so, we, we clearly know that we need to transition to the use and expansion of renewable energy. Um, we need to be thinking about how we transition our cars, all these sorts of sources, how to not necessarily um, change agricultural practices, but increase the efficiency, right? So we have less nitrogen, for example, running off our landscapes. Um, it really is an all sectors on, on deck um, situation. We know very clearly where the main sources of emissions are, um, but really the only way we're going to see the transformation at scale is by, by commitments and leadership across all of the current major sources of greenhouse gas emissions. And of course, I understand and I grapple with this in my own life. It's sort of like, well, I don't own a fossil fuel company or I don't make the decisions about X, Y, or Z. 
um, and an individual can show up in these solutions. Uh, we can ask questions in our places of work around, say, energy efficiency, um, around sort of industrial or industry or corporate practices um, that might help contribute to reducing emissions. And we can think about where we can make a role in our daily lives and, and model that leadership. Um, but of course, it also we also know that we need action at scale. If we are to get anywhere near the policy targets set forward in the Paris Climate Agreement, which are aiming to limit warming to 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit above the pre-industrial average, we know we have to reduce emissions by at least half in the next decade. And getting there is going to be very, very difficult. Um, and so we know we need political will and we need elected officials at all scales of governance working proactively to ensure that as we embark on this transition, we're doing it in an equitable way. We're making sure that it's economically feasible, that we're maintaining jobs or providing upskilling or reskilling for folks who might be at risk of losing jobs. Um, but lots of those solutions and the economic impacts and pathways towards this new renewable energy economy, um, they're well studied. It's well articulated. Um, we now just need to make sure we're putting those resources in place. Um, while also, you know, sort of we started this conversation talking about kind of adaptation, the preparation mm -hmm. piece. When I think about climate change and climate solutions, we have to not only be urgently reducing the root cause of the problem, this is the production of greenhouse gases by human by humans. We also have to be preparing for the changes we know we've set in motion. We, as a global society, have committed to a certain amount of climate change. Um, basically, carbon dioxide, once you emit it, you've committed. And so we know we also have to be, as communities, investing in strengthening um, our social resilience, our built environment, our sort of physical resilience with hard infrastructure, um, and our sort of economic resilience. And that, of course, is much easier said than done. It sounds very daunting. And that's why I always think, is this even possible? Because I think I heard a, read a report or heard the report somewhere that said, you know, we're beyond, we can't go back, obviously. So can we at least slow it down? I mean, it, is it inevitable that we're going to heat up? And I don't know, years from now, it's basically going to be so there's no stopping it? No, we still choose. Um, we very clearly still have a choice as a global society, you know, and individuals in, in the U.S. and as Minnesotans, um, we still choose. We have not determined and locked in the fate of global climate at the end of the century. Um, we know under all emission scenarios leading into mid-century, we've committed to a certain amount of warming. Um, but we, you know, to borrow from our, <laughs> our friends as we are familiar with this language because we're navigating a pandemic, um, we still get to, we can still choose to bend the curve or not. Um, and the climate that we experience um, at the end of the century and leading up to the end of the century um, is going to be determined by our actions today. Um, and so, so yes, we still have a choice and our actions do matter. Um, in fact, every action matters. So Heidi, can you predict how things will look different in Minnesota with the way climate change has been going. I'm a gardener, and so we've been in zone four, but in a lot of cases, some years I'm more zone five because of the way things have been warming up. Is this a trend that's going to continue? Can you predict, you know, longer winters, shorter winters, uh, anything, more rain, uh, whatever that we're going to have in Minnesota? Are there things that you, as a climate scientist, say this is what you can expect? 
Yeah, so our local and your sort of state-based climate projections that look out towards the end, the middle of the century and the end of the century, and we are actually in the process of generating new information for the state of Minnesota. So um, you can follow our group, the Minnesota Climate Adaptation Partnership, if you're interested in seeing more specifically about um, future climate changes in your own backyard. Um, but on the whole, as a state, we are anticipating much warmer conditions, wetter conditions, shorter frost seasons, and an increase in summer heat. Um, we are expecting more days per year where our daily high exceeds 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, so we're in store for a range of changes. But again, um, what we experience here in Minnesota at the end of the century is largely up to us um, and depending on, on the emissions of greenhouse gases. So therein lies the sort of we choose. How much warmer, how much wetter, um, how much hotter during the summer it gets, those are still choices that we get to make. I'm not looking forward to that because as a gardener in the summer when it's hot and humid, it's just not very fun. And this past year was a drought, and I don't know if that's a thing of climate change or if it's just one of those cyclical things. Right, so that's a great, and we do, we are very careful in the climate science community to attribute any single event to climate change. Um, we are increasingly able through what we call attribution science, able to sort of look at the specific fingerprints of that climate change might have on a given event. Um, but in Minnesota, the sort of pattern of drought will be experienced this year, sort of right in the range of, of natural variability. Um, so in the Midwest, wet extremes have increased in magnitude over the last 70 years, but our dry extremes have largely remained the same. And that's according to um, lots of different research, including new research just published by NOAA and the University of Illinois. However, and interesting, potentially relevant to you as a gardener <laughs> as well, um, is that what we are experiencing are these transitions between our wet extremes and our dry extremes. Those are happening more quickly and more frequently. Um, that's particularly true in the lower Midwest. Um, but again, a pattern of change we anticipate uh, becoming more regular, right? This sort of transition between extremes. So we're really in a position where we have to hold kind of two truths simultaneously, right? It is overall a trend towards wetter conditions and more extreme precipitation, but we will still have to nav navigate drought, likely more extreme drought, hmm. um, but we're going to oscillate between those wet and dry periods more frequently. And that, of course, makes it really hard to plan right. <laughs> and to pre prepare, um, particularly in the agricultural sector. Oh, for sure. Is there any areas that are being affected more by climate change than others? I mean, we've been primarily talking about Midwest and that sort of thing. Are certain parts of the world experiencing it more, or is it pretty much everywhere's getting their own taste in whatever different way that might be? Exactly. And again, with the most recent Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change um, Assessment, um, it's really clear that we see signals of climate change everywhere around the world. Um, different areas will experience different amounts of warming and different impacts. Um, for example, coastal areas are already experiencing sea level rise, something we know they'll continue to experience. Um, but this warming we know is already affecting many weather and climate extremes in every region across the globe. And so there aren't really winners when it comes to climate change. Um, there are different flavors in different places. Um, and we have things like the Arctic that are warming particularly fast relative to the global average. Uh, but every region is experiencing and will continue to experience um, the consequences of a warmer world. 
Did you follow the Global Summit by chance that happened just last month? I did, of course. And I was just curious, were you hopeful after that, or did you think we've got a long way to come, or what were your feelings after seeing kind of the discussions that went on there and, and what came out of that? All of the the above. Um, you know, I think as as many of us, and we experience this, this too in our sort of local politics, is that, you know, actions speak louder than mm. words. Um, and we know from previous summits, commitments that were made have not been met. Um, in many cases, there aren't sort of there's no real bite <laughs> or teeth to some of these things. There's um, not a lot of um, sort of accountability yet. But I think what we did see very clearly was um, an increased urge, sense of urgency. Um, and and we see a lot more industry and private sector interest, uh, which was sort of signals a, a political change as well as kind of the, the economic shift. Right. There's money to be made in climate solutions and the de- this transition to a renewable and clean energy economy. Um, and, and importantly, um, this has occurred in, in previous um, COP summits, but um, we saw an increased emphasis on, on adaptation, right? This mm-hmm. really essential piece of, of the preparation element of climate. You know, how is it that we as a global society are going to grapple with um, these negative impacts, these more extreme weather events? Um, we're seeing and have lived through things, for example, like the floods in Germany and the extraordinary heat waves in the Pacific Northwest. And you know, we are breathing smoke-filled air here in uh, Minnesota this summer. We see wildfires out west um, growing and in, in, in area burned. Um, these are things that we need to think about. How are we prepared um, to manage for um, these impacts, both on the landscape as well as sort of human health and that um, kind of there was also an increased sense of urgency and, and commitments made to financing um, and putting resources toward those important resilience measures. One last question. I always like to ask this to wh- whoever I'm talking to who might be a, some sort of a, a scientist related to this. What can I do? What can we do as individuals? Is there anything, whether it's talking to our legislators or whether it's something we can do in our own personal lives to make a difference, even if it's a small difference? Yeah, you know, we so we just talked about this global summit, and and it's hard to think like, well, I'm never going to talk to John Kerry, you know, our yeah. climate envoy. He's never going to. He doesn't care what I have to say, right? <laughs> and so that can be really, it can be really hard to see how you might engage or find agency in that. And of course, we can call and and call and vote. Um, you know, call our federal elected. Um, but many of these decisions and these conversations and where it really is going to show up in our daily lives and are in our local scales of governance, our school boards, our municipalities, thinking about who we're putting in um, all sorts of appointed positions um, across the state. So there is certainly a role in, in engaging <laughs> our, our local elected officials and, and our, our city council members and others and sort of asking how, how are we going to how are we going to manage these risks and and be better for it, right? Come out the other end better. Um, but, you know, that also can be difficult. And I think really people need to identify, you know, where where are you, where are your strengths? What brings you joy? What do you care about? What's at risk from a changing climate? And then think about, you know, how do I contribute um, to ensuring that, that that isn't negatively impacted or that I can address this other kind of multi-solve? Um, and so, you know, what I'm not in the business of telling people what they should do. Um, there are lots of things we can do. And I think one easy, free thing that everyone can do um, is have a conversation about climate. We all care about different things. It's what, it's what makes us great and diverse, right? And we all have different capacities and interests. And so 
um, understanding and having a conversation with your family or your friends um, about these climate impacts, about climate change, about the risks that your community might face, and think about how that might you might shape your community in a different way or in a better way. I think those are um, really important conversations and a real starting point. Uh, we know that a majority of Minnesotans are concerned about climate change and, and think that it is happening. Fewer of us think it's going to happen to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and a significant minority of us have conversations about climate change or hear about it in the news. And so if there's anything we want to do to sort of shift the tides of agency and political will and concern um, is to talk about it with our communities and with uh, within our families and our friends um, to be where we are trusted messengers start thinking about why it matters to you and what you can do about it. We have been talking with Dr. Heidi Roop with the University of Minnesota Extension Specialist about climate change, adaptation, impacts, and communication. I want to thank you for your time. You've provided with us with a wealth of information from your research. and Thank you so much. It's much appreciated. Thank you. And everyone that was listening gets to count this as a climate action. Thank you. Take care. Yep. Bye-bye. Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org.